0: have reached hell. If you would like to sell your soul to the devil, press button 1. To arrange a guided tour of hell, press button 2. To schedule eternal damnation, press button 3. If you would like to talk to the big guy himself, well, he's a little busy tending the fire and brimstone. So, leave your message after the... Dreams of the condemned, and we'll get back to you as soon as we can. Hello, everyone. And thank you for tuning in to Point of Insanity Game Studios. In general, podcast. I am Al, and this is going to be a diabolical episode as we are going to be talking about the nine hells. And, you know, one of the things that's so fun about Dungeons and Dragons is that over the years, they've pulled in inspiration from a wide variety of sources. You know, you'll find creatures in Dungeons and Dragons from classical Greek mythology, uh, Norse mythology, uh, various Asian mythologies, so they really drew in a lot of different cultures when they were creating Dungeons and Dragons and some of the world and the universe behind it. So that's what made me want to think about this particular episode and Who knows? Maybe in the future, I might do more episodes talking about some of the historical or cultural influences of Dungeons and Dragons. But let's start by talking about the nine hells. You might wonder what was that, you know, that little fake answering machine message that I put as kind of a little introduction to the show? That's actually based on a real answering machine message that. I got back in, oh, I'm wanting to say it was about the mid-90s. I remember I was in college at the time and I was calling a friend and I don't remember if I was just one digit off or if I flipped two of the numbers around, but I got the wrong number. And it was similar to that answering, answering machine message that I made for the uh, start of the episode. So let's take a look at the Nine Hells. Now, you might wonder, why are there Nine Hells? And probably because they took inspiration from a famous poem, Dante's Inferno, uh, made by an Italian poet. But he has a very famous three-part poem, Inferno, Purgatory, and Paradise. It's collectively known as the Divine Comedy. And in it, the poet himself, Dante, goes on a journey from hell to purgatory to finally heaven. I'm not sure why he chose Nine Hells. As far as I could tell when I was doing a little bit of research for this episode, I couldn't really find any specific bit of folklore saying, oh yeah, there's Nine Hells and here's you know, where we could find it. Possibly, it's because of the significance of the number three. Now, in Dante's Divine Comedy, things often happen in threes. Uh, For example, at the start, he encounters three animals, three beasts, a lion, a leopard, and a wolf. And also, there were three types of sin that could lead one into hell. And in the order of least severe to most severe, these sins were excessiveness, violence, and fraud. Three times three equals nine. So that's probably the best guess I can think of as to why uh, Dante chose to have nine hells. Now, the way Dante structured his hell is, again, you had these different levels, and the uh, lower you got the more severe your your crime or your sin was. So, kind of interesting that he put violence in the middle there. Excessiveness, not really a major sin, or at least not as bad as violence, but he put fraud as a more severe sin than violence. I'm not sure why he did that in his view. I would think that killing someone is a bit worse than lying to them but we're not going to get into that particular topic right now but maybe it's because of uh, Dante and some of the events that happened during his life now as I recall when I read Dante's Inferno in my college uh, literature class uh, classic and medieval literature as I recall the version of the book we had did have footnotes where it talked about some of the political background behind Dante's life. And for this reason, Dante's Inferno is useless as a theological document. Partly because, well, he has his own political commentary in there, and I think he also has a little bit of wish fulfillment in there. Let me give you an example. Early on in his journey he meets up with four great poets of the ancient world. Homer, Horace, Ovid, and Lucan. And during his journey, he's guided by the spirit of another poet called Virgil. And when he meets up with them, they declare him to be the sixth among their company of great poets. No egotism there, right? Also, when you read the book, a lot of the footnote versions that you'll find of uh, the Inferno mention how he imagined various people who had done him or his family wrong being punished. Now, as far as how Dante structured his vision of hell, he liked to picture it as a place of, I guess you could say, poetic justice. The punishment fitting the crime. So let's journey into Dante's Hell, and then we'll compare that to uh, the hell that's pictured in the 1st edition Dungeons & Dragons Manual of the Planes. Now I know there have been Manual of the Planes released for other editions of Dungeons & Dragons, except 2nd edition I don't believe had Manual of the Planes, instead they had the Planescape setting, so... I'm not really familiar with those products so that's why I'm sticking with first edition manual of the planes because I have a physical copy of that As Dante begins his journey he finds himself at the vestibule of hell so this is actually not in hell itself but rather it's the area outside of hell along the river Arcaron and this area is home to people who took no side in their life. So they never really did anything for the cause of good or righteousness or justice, but they weren't exactly evil or, you know, they really didn't do anything to have to deserve actually going into hell itself. So it was also said that this was home to the angels that, didn't take a side when Satan rebelled against God. Now, this is described as a very misty area, and for eternity they have to chase a banner. And this is symbolic of the fact that they were opportunists, and they were always chasing their own self-interests. They're also stung by insects as they run around in this marshy area. And this is supposed to be symbolic of the spiritual stagnation that they were in. Well, once they cross the river Archeron, they find themselves in the first level of hell, which Dante refers to as limbo. This is the realm of the virtuous pagans and the unbaptized. In Dante's worldview... The only way you could possibly get to heaven is you had to have been baptized. So, if you were born before Jesus, then, well, tough luck. Also, if you never had the opportunity to get baptized, again, tough luck. So, since you weren't baptized, you you couldn't be led into heaven, in his opinion. But some of these people here, well, they still led virtuous lives nonetheless, So they were put in this limbo area where it was the best that a rational mind without any conception of God or virtue or salvation could conceive of. And this is where he meets those other poets that I was talking about. The second layer is the lustful. These are people who had the sin of excessiveness and that's what we'll see in the second third and fourth layers so again these are people who couldn't control their urges and their desires now the second layer uh, the home of the lustful is often pictured as being a realm of violent storms they're blown around in the wind and that's representational of the fact that they had no controls over their desires in life, so in the afterlife they're going to get blown around and have no control. It is said this layer is guarded by Minos as he judges the dead and sends them to their respective layers in hell. The third layer is the home of the gluttonous. In this realm, they're forced to wallow in a freezing slush and this part of hell is tormented by rain and sleet and snow and it represents the nature of gluttony and addiction because it causes one to become cold, empty, and show no regards towards others. So for For him, it was symbolic that they would be forced to spend eternity in this cold, miserable environment because their addiction caused them to become cold towards other people. This realm was guarded over by the three-headed hound of hell, Cerebus. The fourth layer is where we find the stingy and the prodigal. So we've got both ends of the spectrum here. On one hand, you've got people who hoarded all their money. And you've also got the people who spent it foolishly. It was said that they would push around great weights, which was symbolic of the money that controlled them during their lives. They would use it as a weapon against each other, and it was said that they would often scold each other at the the hoarders, saying, why do you spend and the prodigal saying, why do you hoard? It was also said that the spirits who inhabited this layer of hell so consumed by their desires that they lose all sense of individuality. This layer of hell was said to be guarded by Plutus, who may or may not have been associated with the more well-known Roman god of Pluto. Both were associated with the underworld, as well as wealth and greed. The next layer, the fifth layer, as well as the, se- the uh, seventh layer, we'll get to the sixth layer. It kind of skips a, a bit in here, but the this is where we start to go from the people who lived of, lives of excess and greed to people who lived lives of violence. Now, the fifth layer, here is where Dante and Virgil have to cross the River Styx. And this is where they encounter the wrathful, the angry. And there's two types of angry people that they encounter in this, the river. First, the wrathful are the people who are described as having passive anger. They took out that anger upon others. And not only that, there's also the sullen. These were people who were passively angry. So they didn't necessarily take out their anger on others, but they allowed that anger to cause that to to hold them back in life. And their punishment here, the wrathful were forced to fight each other as they expressed their anger outwardly. The sullen, though, were forced to remain submerged in the muck because, well, as I said, they let their anger hold them down. And as a result, they were no longer able to find any joy ever. Well, from here, after crossing the River Styx, Virgil and Dante enter the city of Dis. Its walls were said to be guarded by fallen angels, as well as various monsters from Greek mythology. And Dante did draw upon Greek and Roman mythology. In in this part of his poem, uh, he mentions there's Medusa and the the Furies that are guarding the the wall. And then later on, he meets Titans as well as centaurs. Layer six is where the heretics go, and these people are trapped in flaming tombs for all eternity. Seventh level is home to the violent, and again, these are people who weren't just angry, but actually used their violence for more sinister means, and there's three circles here. The first is for people who committed acts of violence against their neighbors. This included murderers and tyrants. They were forced to stay submerged within a river of boiling blood, and the depth that they had to stay at, was symbolic of how much violence and bloodshed they caused during their lives. So, this should be pretty clear what Dante's symbolism here was. Again, these people had caused so much bloodshed during their lives, now they're forced to spend eternity in that blood. They were also tortured by centaurs, who, in Greek mythology, some centaurs were pictured as being very violent and the centaurs would make sure that the souls here didn't try to uh, escape that river of boiling blood next is the forest of the suicides the people who committed acts of violence against themselves and this is really kind of sad here because the grove or the forest of suicides the souls that are condemned here take the forms of trees and bushes so they they lose that sense of humanity that they had and it's said that there are harpies that pluck out their leaves and when you tear off the leaves or the bark from these branches or these trees and bushes it bleeds and this is the only time that the condemned souls can tell their stories. The symbolism here being that they can only tell their story through pain and suffering. Next is for people who are committed acts of violence against nature. This included blasphemers as well as sodomites, and they were tortured in a desert with burning rain of fire. This was supposed to be symbolic of the fact that since they had committed crimes against nature... They should be forced to dwell in an environment of sterility. The eighth and ninth level are for the fraudulent and the betrayers. Now, the eighth level is divided into ten ditches. Some of the punishments here are quite creative. For example, people who tried to see the future because, well, then. the the Bible does condemn divination, they're forced to walk in this ditch with their heads turned backwards because they tried to see the future in life, which Dante thought you, sh- you weren't allowed to do. So therefore now for eternity, they can never see where they're going to go. Corrupt politicians were forced to wallow in a lake of boiling pitch. This was symbolic of the dark secrets they had in their sticky hands from engaging in corrupt political practices. He also mentions thieves here are tortured and bitten by snakes. Next, there's the sowers of discord, and these are people who intentionally tried to stir up violence. And... Uh, They're hacked apart by a demon with a sword and eventually they do heal up, but by the time they heal up, then they have to go get hacked up again. Hypocrites were forced to walk around with uh, robes that were lined with lead, which was symbolic of how their lies and their deception were weighing them down. And finally, and perhaps one of my most favorite punishments in Dante's Inferno, the flatterers. These people are buried in feces. They spend so much of their life talking crap, now they got to wallow in it. Well, you've probably heard the term when hell freezes over. And according to Dante, when you get to the lowest level of hell, it has frozen over already. And the ninth level of hell is for people who were betrayers. As Dante, perhaps due to some of the political events that he was involved in, obviously he saw betrayal as being a very serious thing. And it's said it's very cold and they're frozen in ice because it represents being the furthest one can possibly be from God's love. And the more severe the crime, the deeper the soul is frozen in this ice. At the center of this is Satan. He's depicted as a three-headed beast chewing the three greatest betrayers in history, Judas, Cassius, and Brutus. He's a perversion of his former self, because according to folklore, before the fall, uh, Satan or Lucifer was supposed to be the fairest of the angels, and The fact that he has three heads is said to be a a perversion of the Trinity. Well, now let's compare that to the nine hells depicted in first edition Dungeons and Dragons Manual of the Plains. Now, naturally, they took some liberties, and I think part of that is necessity because In a game like Dungeons & Dragons, where it's accepted that there's going to be multiple different worlds with all sorts of different religions, you you can't really do what you would do on Earth, where you've got just a smaller number of religions. you got to think of some creative way that you can create this realm and have it be able to be worked into different Dungeons & Dragons uh, pantheons that they created over the years. And as I recall in the uh, Manual of the Plains, as well as some of the other supplements I've seen, they'll often refer to some of these uh, fictional deities they created as residing in some of these outer planes, the Nine Hells included. In the Manual of the Plains, the first layer of hell is Avernus. And this is a rocky wasteland covered in flammable gas that's guarded over by Tiamat. And it's also seen as a a hiding place for lesser devils who are out of favor with a more powerful devil. Now, this is actually very fitting because Avernus itself means no birds, and it's named after a crater in Italy. According to Roman mythology, this particular crater was also seen as the entrance to the Underworld. The reason it is called No Birds is because small animals like birds can easily be killed or overtaken by the poisonous fumes that came from these craters. For that reason, it's very accurate that this area inspired this first level of uh, hell in Dungeons & Dragons. Tiamat is taken from Babylonian mythology. She was the goddess of the salt waters, the oceans, who came together with Apsu, god of fresh water, to create the cosmos. Later, she is killed by the god Marduk, who uses her body to create the earth. So Tiamat in Babylonian mythology, not the same Tiamat we see in D&D. While she is often pictured as a great dragon, she's not the multi-headed, multicolored dragon that we know and love from D&D. The second layer is Dis. So when they wrote this book, they decided to move the city of Dis to the second level. And I suppose it makes sense because while uh, the first layer is seen as kind of the, the doorway to hell, uh, the, it makes sense that you would have the city then that would guard the lower layers of hell from um, any adventurers that might try to go there. The name Dis is thought to be another name for the Roman god Pluto. Dis is also the name of the devil who rules this layer. The city is surrounded by toxic waters, and the realm is said to be stormy, which does tie nicely with Dante's description of the second layer of hell being a place that's home to those who are guided by their lust and let it blow them around like leaves in the wind. The ruler of the second level is Despater, which believed to be another name for uh, the Roman god Pluto. Level three is Minaros. And this lo- layer also draws several parallels to Dante. It is described as a decaying swamp pounded by rain, hail, and sleet. Just like as we recall when we are reading about this layer in Dante's Inferno, it was also pictured as being a very wet, cold layer. It's ruled over by Mammon, and Mammon is said to be the personification of greed. But not exactly a perfect match to Dante, but because Mammon is associated with material wealth as opposed to excessive consumption of food. Again, Dante did picture hell as being a place where people who were excessively greedy would be punished. So, I guess maybe it still fits in there as well. Well, from here, the hells as portrayed by Dungeons & Dragons starts to diverge quite a bit from Dante's imaginations. Layer 4 is Phlegathos. And it takes its name from the Phlegathon a river in Greek mythology that's said to be made of liquid fire. So this layer matches mythology as it's also a realm of fire and volcanoes. It's ruled over by Belial, and his name translates to something similar to worthless, and it's thought to be a generic name for the devil. Now, this character Belial does appear in the, one of the Dead Sea Scrolls, and he's pictured as a leader of the Sons of Darkness. It is said his words inspire men to commit wicked acts. However, other parts of the Dead Sea Scrolls describe him as a Watcher. Now, the Watchers were angels who became obsessed and enamored by human women would go on to mate with them and produce a race of giants, which in the uh, Bible, and the book of Genesis, it's very, very briefly glanced over. I I forgot the exact words, but it was something like, and there were giants in those days. So that's that's where that came from. Level five is Stygia. And the name of this layer comes from the river Styx. And in Manual of the Plains, the River Styx flows through this region, but since Le- Layer 5 is a cold, icy swamp, it's fitting that it would take its name from the River Styx. It's ruled by Geryon, who also appears in the Inferno. Now, Geryon in Greek mythology is described as having either three heads or sometimes a a monster made up of three conjoined bodies. He appears in the Tenth Labor of Hercules. Hercules had to steal his cattle, and did it by he shot the giant with one of his arrows, which was dipped in the blood of the Hydra, and thus it was highly poisonous. In the Inferno, though, he appears as a wyvern with lion's paws and a man's face and he transports Dante and Virgil from the 7th level of Hell to the 8th level of Hell. Now, as far as how he's depicted in in the Monster Manual, Monster Manual 1 seems to draw upon Dante's description, as he's pictured as having the uh, torso and head and upper body of a man, though he had wings and a serpent-like tail. Level 6 is called Melboji, which means evil ditches, it's described as a large pile of city-sized blocks of rock that might rest upon an ocean of lava. This is fitting because it's ruled by Moloch. The part about it being made up of all these rocks, you know, large blocks of rock, doesn't quite match up with, the, with Dante's description, but. The, the reason that it's they say it might float on a, a sea of lava is fitting because of how Moloch is mentioned in the Bible. Now, Moloch was believed to be a Canaanite god associated with child sacrifice. And it was often depicted as being a huge bronze statue that would have a fire burning inside of it. It is mentioned several times in Leviticus with... Phrasing that usually describes passing uh, through the fire to Moloch. So it was believed that the people who worshipped these deities would sacrifice children by putting it in this huge bronze statue where the poor child would be burnt alive. The seventh layer is Maladomini. It is a wasteland ruled by Beelzebul. It is said to have a great fortress with a million rooms, and under it is a dungeon so vast, not even the devils are aware of exactly how big it is. Now, the name of the devil that rules this level, Beelzebub, probably sounds familiar. We've heard in popular culture. There's they sometimes picture a a devil Beelzebub, and it's believed to be a Philistine god. The name is commonly translated to Lord of the Flies. Now when we break down the name, the first part is a common title in Canaanite mythology, Baal, which simply means Lord or Ruler. And the other part of it is believed to translate to something of of the manor, but the way the Hebrews described it, since they were enemies with the Philistines, they I guess they translated it a little bit differently, where you know they viewed their god as just a pile of dung and flies would be attracted to this dung, which is why we probably interpreted that as Lord of the Flies. Layer 8 is called Cana, and it's a vast glacier ruled by Mephistopheles. Another diabolic devil name that we see in the works of fiction. The name Cana, spelled C-A-I-N-A, does appear in Dante's Inferno as a region of the ninth layer. It's named in reference to the biblical figure Cain, and it was the place of punishment for those who betrayed their kin as Cain, of course, in the the famous story of Cain and Abel, betrayed his brother by killing him. And it also matches Dante's descriptions, as this level of hell is pictured as being a realm of intense cold. The name Mephistopheles is, is familiar, and most people know it from the story of Faust. He was known for corrupting mortals. But some people who have interpreted the story of Faust say that he doesn't actually actively corrupt people, but Mephistopheles instead makes deals with those who are already corrupt. So he makes these deals to hasten their departure to the underworld where they can claim his soul. And as a side note, uh, several years ago, The uh, group, the Trans-Siberian Orchestra, released an album called Beethoven's Last Night. And it's about an interaction between Beethoven and Mephistopheles. So it actually has a very good story behind it, as well as being a very good opera metal album. So if you're into that kind of thing, check it out. Beethoven's Last Night. Well, finally, the ninth layer is called Nessus. This layer takes its name from a centaur in Greek mythology. It was said that Hercules was traveling with his wife and they came to a river and Nessus offered to take Hercules' wife across the river. But when he got to the other side, Nessus tried running off with her. So Hercules drew his bow and shot Nessus dead. Well, as he was dying... He told Hercules' wife to take some of his blood. And if she ever felt Hercules' love was starting to grow weak, all she would have to do was pour some of his blood into Hercules' clothing, and his love would be rekindled. Now, Hercules shot Nessus with one of these arrows that he dipped in the blood of the Hydra. So again, it was very poisonous. And when Hercules' wife did put this blood in his garment and he put it on, he was in intense pain. But because of his part divine nature, being the son of Zeus, he couldn't die from it, but he couldn't recover from it either. So that, as I recall, is what caused him to have to ascend to Mount Olympus to take divine status so he could escape this pain that he was suffering. Nessus also does appear in the Inferno as one of the centaurs who torment souls on the seventh le- level of hell. Now, in the Manual of the Plains, Nessus is a realm of extremes, from vast plains assaulted by uh, walls of fire to great lakes of shifting ice patches. And it is said to be ruled by Asmodeus. Now another little interesting tidbit from Manual of the Planes is they say there's rumor of a portal somewhere in Nessus that will lead out of this plane and that is powerful enough to destroy any evil that touches it. Now this is just my own personal opinion, but I'm wondering if that was maybe a a reference to Dante's Inferno. Because the way that Dante got out of Hell... Is he had to crawl down the devil's leg, and that's what brought him to purgatory where he could continue his journey on to heaven. Well, Asmodeus, he may have his roots in uh, Zoroastrianism as a demon of wrath. He is often said to be a demon not only associated with wrath and anger, but also with lust and revenge. In the Bible, he does appear in the book of Tobit, and he torments a woman named Sarah by slaying her husbands on their wedding night, and she had killed Sarah's seven husbands. However, Tobias is kept safe by burning a fish heart and a fish's liver, which causes Asmodeus to flee to Egypt. And there, it's said he's bound by the angel Raphael. And again, symbolic here, because Raphael means something to the effect of God has healed. Asmodeus also appears in the Talmud, where it is said that he is married to Lilith, and he was the son of Adam and a prostitute named Nama, who was actually a demon in disguise. We get a little bit more information about Asmodeus from the Malus Malefectrum, or Hammer of the Witches, and this was the witch hunter's guidebook, so to speak, and it had all sorts of information on it about various demons and devils and the folklore surrounding them. According to the Malefectrum, it said that Asmodeus commands 72 legions of demons and is second only to Lucifer. Demonologists back then also gave various devils and demons a month that they were associated with, and Asmodeus was said to be associated with November. So that was the month that he was said to be the strongest. Now as far as his appearance, well, Dungeons and Dragons did take some steps to improve his appearance, and as I recall in uh, Monster Manual 1, he's described as being diabolically handsome. However, older descriptions of him aren't quite as handsome and as flattering. He's said to have three heads the head of a man, a bull, and a ram. He, one of his feet was also a rooster's foot. He had a serpent's tail, and he also rode a lion with dragon's wings. So that's a little bit about the Nine Hells and some of the details behind the devils. Now you might wonder, though, why did they not include Satan when they were creating Manual of the Planes? I can only guess, but I think probably the reason that they chose Asmodeus as the ruler of the hells instead of Satan, probably because, well... Gary Gygax is—he's the one that wrote the the first Monster Manual, and he was a Christian, so he may not have felt comfortable writing about Satan. So that could be one possibility. And uh, now, the first Monster Manual was released in—I think it was 1979. So this was a little bit before the Satanic Panic had reached its peak, but. They may have also foreseen the controversy this would cause if uh, they did create this book that did have Satan in it and that gave them game stats and other descriptions. And I've read different forums about people and how specifically Christian gamers have viewed why they would include devils and demons in Dungeons and Dragons, and one post I read was actually quite insightful. He noted that Gygax didn't really glorify these beings, and he pictured them as something that needed to be defeated and overcome, hence why we have game stats for them. And, you know, there's always that cute little uh, meme from the Dungeons & Dragons memes Facebook page where it has the picture of Arnold Schwarzenegger and his soldiers from the Predator movie, and it says, if it has stats, we can kill it. And then below that, it has a picture of Cthulhu, and it says, oh, relay." Well, I'm going to call this episode to a close, so I... Hope you enjoyed this episode, and maybe there's a little tidbit or two of information in here that you can uh, use for your next campaign. And even if you don't plan on using any of this information in one of your campaigns, I hope you at least found it interesting. And who knows, maybe in the future I'll do some more episodes talking about some of the mythological and historical uh, sources that Dungeons & Dragons has drawn its inspiration from over the years. So with that said, I'd like to thank you all for tuning in and have a good evening or morning or afternoon, whatever it is, wherever you are, and happy gaming. You have been listening to a program from the Point of Insanity Network. Visit us at poigamestudio.podbean.com for more shows. Follow us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at POI Game Studios.